start uh, by asking a question. The question is, what are you doing, there it is, what are you doing to pass on the faith to the next generation? In what way are you working to affirm those who come after you in their faith as Christians? Now, you may feel that you have very little, very little to offer the future generations. But I want to say that nothing is further from the truth. You know, if 2020 has taught us nothing else, it's that even small, insignificant things can have a big impact. Who would have thought that something as little as a sore throat in Wuhan, China, would have had such a huge and global impact only a couple of months later, right? Small things, little actions, they can have a huge impact. So my prayer for us today, as we look at Psalm 78 together, is that God will convict us all that we, we have both capacity and the responsibility to pass on the faith to the next generation. So uh, if you'd pray with me now, let's, let's ask God for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you give it to us, through it you speak to us and you, you tell us about yourself and you tell us about uh, what you'd have us do. Uh, Lord, as we, as we listen to Psalm 78 today, please convict us uh, that we have capacity and responsibility to, to pass on our faith to the next generation for your glory. Amen. Now, I thought I'd, I'd kind of start just by introducing myself a little bit to you, because as Tim pointed out, I haven't been here for very long. Um, I've been uh, a Jamboree Anglican for about two and a half months now. Uh, and the reason we started coming is because my wife, Gemma, uh, came on board she, as, uh, as part of the staff team here as the mother's minister, um, which I'm really stoked about, because that means that, for once, I get to be the ministry spouse. Uh, for our entire marriage, she's been the ministry wife. Now it's my turn. Um, and I'm loving that opportunity. Uh, I've been in youth ministry uh, for quite a long time, basically since I left school, um, which has been about 20 years or so now. Um, and the last 10 of those years, I've uh, been ordained as an Anglican youth minister. That's right, we exist, ordained for youth ministry. Um, and so youth ministry, ministry to young people, is something I'm very passionate about, um, and uh, cu- currently, I work for an organisation called Anglican YouthWorks. Uh, some of you may have heard, of, heard about it. Um, uh, some of you, if you go to school, you might have gone on camps at some of the, uh, the uh, campsites that YouthWorks run. It's a huge uh, organisation, and the part that I work for is called the Ministry Support Team, which basically means that I work as a youth ministry advisor, helping churches to engage in effective uh, ministry to, to young people. And that's what I love doing. Um, there are a few things in my life that God did uh, to convict me that hanging around for so long in youth ministry is something that I wanted to do. One of them actually being our beloved senior minister, Jody McNeil. Uh, when I first met Jody in the early 2000s, uh, he was actually in my job that I'm doing now. He was, he was doing it back then. Uh, and he's, uh, you know, like in all things, Jody's enthusiasm and passion in this case for youth ministry uh, had an impact on me. Uh, and he was one, one way that God convinced me that actually sticking it out in youth ministry long term is what I want to do. Uh, another one of the reasons is this picture here. 
Uh, this picture represents information from uh, what's called the National Church Life Survey. Uh, some of you might remember that. The Ch- National Church Life Survey is, is the biggest survey in Australia other than the National Census, something that all the churches do once every five years, uh, and it gives us some information about, well, church life. Um, uh, and according to the NCLS, as it's called, ten, sorry, eight out of ten Christians in our churches decided to live for Jesus before the age of 20. And that's what that top line represents, those green people there. Eight out of 10 Christians decided to follow Jesus before they turned 20. Now, I want to test that. If that's true for you, put up your hand. If you made a decision to to live for Jesus before you were 20, whack your hand up. So it's true, I think that's probably even a little bit more than than 80% here. Bringing the average up, excellent. Um... It's true for me as well. I became a Christian as a 14-year-old. It's in the childhood and teenage years that people turn to Jesus. And so when I, when I heard that, I thought, well, if I want to have an impact for God's kingdom, these are the people I want to be working with. But the other side of that coin is the bottom line, the orange people. And that represents the 40% of children who are brought up in church who walk away from the faith before the age of 25. Now, if you're in the room today and you, you are 25 or younger, put your hand up. Anyone who's 25 or younger, hand up. Everyone else, look around. That means that 40% of these people with their hands up, statistically speaking, won't be here in the coming decades. And they won't be anywhere. They won't be in any church. Thanks, guys. You can put your hands down now. That's, that's a staggering statistic to me. It's tragic. And it highlights for me that engaging an effective ministry to young people is vital to the future of our church. And this is the message of Psalm 78. It gives us some insight how we might invest into these young people, into this rising generation. And so we're going to walk through it together now. As we do, you'll probably go, oh, that sounds familiar. It's because we read it earlier on today. Uh, The first thing that we want to realise, before the psalm even starts in verse 1, is kind of verse 0, is the heading, is that this is a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph, he was the leader of the temple musicians during the time of David. Uh, He led Israel in singing praises to God, uh, to teach them the truths of God, to help them to respond to him in heartfelt, authentic praise. Um, and so he, he wrote songs uh, and, he, and he led Israel in singing them to God. You, you might be surprised to find out that you know, singing in church isn't something that, that we just do. It's something that's always happened all the way back to the days of the temple. Uh, and in the Bible, there's this book called Psalms. And Psalms was the hymn book of the Old Testament. Uh, some of you might know what, not know what that hymn book is. Basically, it's a song book. You know, we have people like Colin Buchanan and City of Light and Keith Getty writing our songs. For us, it was the psalm writers. It was people like Asaph. They would write the songs that the people of God sung. And this is one of them, Psalm 78. Take a look at the first few verses with me. It says, O my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to hear what I'm saying, for I will speak to you in a parable. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past. As you read through the Psalms, most of them start with like a profound kind of sentence, something like, 
you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, you know, like a, a great, awesome petition to God. Or some of them start with a, a, a deep, heartfelt question like, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? But this one kind of starts off, I reckon it sounds a bit more like one of those corny old school campfire songs, you know, where, you know, every, everyone sits down around the fire, the old guy sits, out, sits down with his banjo, he starts twiddling the, the strings and starts saying something to the effect of, you know, come gather around people, let me tell you a story. And you can picture that, can't you? That, and that that's, I, I, I feels to me that's what Asaph's doing here. He's kind of gathering the people around to listen. He's, a, he's not addressing God. He's addressing his people, Israel, us. And he's trying to get us to listen to his instructions. Not just to listen and hear the words that he says, but to listen with openings, to be willing and receptive to the, to the lessons that he's going to share. And as, as we hear these lessons, as people of God hear these lessons, they shouldn't be very surprising. Because... As verse 3 says, these are stories that we've heard and known. Stories that our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We'll tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. So these are stories that the people of God should really already be familiar with. Now, my kids love stories. And they especially love stories about me. They love it when we sit around the dinner table and they, they ask me questions about me and I tell them stories about my childhood exploits and the mischief I'd get up to and with my friends, the funny things that I did and said. And they love these stories because as we laugh about the weird and wonderful world of little Maddie Bartlett, it gives them a better sense of me as a person, of who I am. And it also affirms their affinity with me as an important person in their lives. And in doing that, it affirms them in their identity and in their relationship to me as their dad. That's what sharing stories does. Stories help help affirm us as members of a family or of a community. And that's why Asaph here is all about sharing stories but not just any old story, stories about the glorious deeds of the Lord. Because sharing stories about our Heavenly Father gives us more of a sense of who He is. And it also affirms us as His people. When you stop and think about it, God's done some, some pretty amazing things in history. You know, page one of the Bible, God creates... Everything, out of nothing, simply by speaking. That's that's a pretty glorious thing that he did. Later on, he he creates a nation of millions of people from an old barren couple. That's a pretty big deed. He, He appears to his people in a pillar of fire and cloud. Man, I wish I'd seen that. That would have been pretty glorious. He saves him from his enemies in astounding ways, sending plagues, parting the Red Sea. These are just a few of the glorious deeds of God that would have been in Asaph's mind as he, as he wrote this psalm. Story, and these stories about God and what he's done, they're not just fairy tales. You know, fairy tales designed to entertain kids 
or make them behave. They are stories of truth which have been passed on from one generation to the next throughout history, handed down from our ancestors, it says. And here Asaph is exhorting the people of God to ensure that they do not fail to continue passing these lessons on to the next generation. Now, why is he doing that? Well, to start with, it's as simple as because God says so. Have a look at verse 5. God issued his laws to Jacob and he gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children. So on one level, it's, it's really simple. It's just God commanded, therefore his people ought to obey. But there's a reason. There's a reason why God commanded this. Verse 6, it's so that, it's verse 6 there, it's so that the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born, and that they would turn, in turn would teach their own children. So God commanded his people to pass on the truths of God to the next generation after them. Now, what Asaph's actually doing here is he's, he's referring to another part of the Bible which came much earlier on. He's, talking, he's referring to a part of the Bible called Deuteronomy, which is where Moses kind of gives the law to the people of God before they enter the Promised Land. And he's talking specifically about Deuteronomy 6 here where the Lord declares to Israel that they must commit themselves wholeheartedly to these commands that he's giving them today, and they've got to repeat them again and again to their children. They've got to talk about them when they're at home, when they're on the road, when they're going to bed, when you're getting up. He says, tie them to your hands, wear them on your foreheads as reminders, write them on the doorposts of your houses and of your gates. In other words... Do everything that you can to make sure the kids know what God has done for them, what he says to them, so that they would know how to live as the saved people of God and so that they would know what to teach the generation that comes after them so that they, in turn, would be able to teach the generation that comes after them and so that they would be able to teach the generation that comes after them and so on and so on. And the purpose of this is... Verse 7, so that each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. The whole objective of telling the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord is so that that they would have faith in him, a real, tangible faith in their Lord who saved them. Now, when the Bible talks about kind of faith and hope. It's not talking about that kind of wishy-washy version of faith and hope that our world kind of talks about. You know, that, that fingers crossed kind of thing where you have no real certainty, just kind of the power of positive thinking. Faith in the Bible is not an unthought through way of explaining the things around us that we don't understand. It's not what it is. And hope... It's not that crutch that people lean on when things are hard in order to make them feel better. That's not what it is. That kind of faith and hope, that's hollow. It's only going to lead to disappointment. The hope that verse 7 is talking about is a confident conviction, a a strong trust in God based on the information that has been passed on to you from people that you trust. 
It's the kind of faith that's at the core of your identity. It's a resilient faith, which translates into all aspects of your being, defines who you are, and is the posture from which you face all of life. And it's a faith which presents itself in faithfulness and obedience. This is the kind of faith that Asaph was exhorting God's people to be working to instill in the following generations lest they end up like their ancestors who were faithless. Take a look at verse 8. It says, Then they will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious and unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. Now, Asaph is writing this psalm at about the point when King David is on the throne. And if you know your Bible timeline, you'll know that between the time when God saved Israel from Egypt, on the one hand, and kind of gave them the law and kind of brought them into the promised land, between that time and the time over here when, when David is sitting on the throne, the kingdom is established, there's a lot of years in between, those two, in between those two moments. And if you know your Bible history, your Bible timeline, then you'll know that you know, during this time, Israel has a pretty bad track record being completely stubborn and rebellious and unfaithful. They do some terrible things. You can read the, the, the long version of what happened through that in the books of Exodus through to 1 Samuel. There's lots of crazy things that are happening. I'm, I'm right in the middle of that at the moment as I'm reading the Bible and there's some crazy things going on, some just astounding disobedience. Now, I encourage you to read it, but if you want the abridged version, you know, not several books, but just several verses, well, that is what the rest of Psalm 78 is all about. I'm not going to, we're not going to read through every single verse. We're just going to kind of skim read it. Um, but let me tell you that as, as I've kind of read these verses, I can't help but be reminded of the story of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that most people will be familiar with, with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's a story about Willy Wonka. He has a chocolate factory, uh, which he graciously opens up uh, for five kids who get their golden tickets and the adults that accompany them. And Willy Wonka is is willing to give both his candy and his heart over to these kids and even to make them heirs of his chocolate kingdom. But as you read through this story or watch through this story, um, you can see a cycle of selfish disobedience shown by just about every one of the kids. You'd think that they'd be grateful for this amazing opportunity that the whole world wants and that Willy Wonka has given those five kids with. You'd think that they'd be grateful, but they aren't. They're constantly selfish, they, they ignore his directions, and they just indulge in the things that they want. Despite the warnings, one after the other, they fail to take heed of what had happened to the person before them, and they continue to act in disobedience and selfishness. You'd think that once it happened the first time, once Augustus Gloop gets stuck in that pipe and got shot out, you'd think they would have learned the lesson. But they don't. And so, Violet Beauregard gets turned into a blueberry. Veruca Salt, salt goes down the rubbish chute. Mike TV is broken into a million pieces and then reassembled as a much smaller version of himself. And only Charlie really seems to take heed. Only he remembers what Willy Wonka is offering them. And so, spoiler alert, he's the sole inheritor of the promised candy land. And... I was reminded of this as I read through the rest of Psalm 78 because this is basically the story of Israel as Asaph presents it. Um, 
In verses 9 to 16, we see amazing miracles of God, just ignored, forgotten by Israel. Glorious deeds that God performed to save Israel from Egypt, like the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, God physically present with his people in a, a pillar of fire and cloud, his provision of water from rock, glorious miracles, all ignored. These glorious deeds of the Lord are forgotten by the generation that saw them with their very own eyes. And it continues in verses 17 to 31, where Israel willfully puts God to the test. They demand that he give them the yummy food that they had in Egypt, the scrumptious delights when they were slaves. They doubted God's goodness and his willingness to provide them with food, and they completely ignored the fact that he'd just saved them from savage oppressors. And so it's understandable in verse 21 that when God hears about their complaints, he was furious and the fire of his wrath burned out against them. But like the merciful and gracious parent that God is, he, provide, he does provide them with food. First of all, with something called manna, which um, just explains as like yummy wafers that are kind of taste like honey. I like to picture them a bit like Monte Carlo's. Uh, you know, sweet, yummy bickies, basically. Pretty good. You know, not just, not just bread, not just gruel. He provides them with something good. And so they eat that, but then they eventually tire of and start grumbling about the manna as well. And so he gives them meat in the form of a quail, which for you young guys, it's basically like a miniature version of a chicken. They had to catch them and, and they got to eat them. But despite God continuing to provide these great things for his people... In spite of this, the people kept on sinning, as it says in verse 32. Despite his wonders, they refused to trust him. And this is the cycle that we continue to see through the rest of Psalm 78. It's disobedience leading to judgment from God, which then kind of leads to repentance, which is not really all that sincere. Verse 36 just says that they're giving God lip service. And yet... As it says there in verse 37, uh, though their hearts were not loyal to him, and they did not keep his covenant, yet he was merciful and forgave their sins. He did not destroy them all. Many times he held back his anger and did not unleash his fury. On and on the story goes, God's people continually forgetting the truths of the past, ignoring the glorious deeds of God, acting in unfaithfulness, stubborn rebellion towards God, but God shows them mercy. It's a frustratingly devastating read. But this is, this is where it ends up when we don't take the advice that Asaph gives us in Psalm 78, when we keep the truths about God hidden. This is where it ends up. And Psalm 78 serves as a warning to God's people about failing to instill the faith in the generations who come after us. It only perpetuates a downward cycle of faithlessness as generation after generation goes astray, like sheep without a shepherd. But it's not all bad news, because in his grace and mercy, God doesn't allow this cycle to continue forever. Rather, he acts to bring it to an end. And in our lack, God provides his people with a shepherd. And so the psalm ends uh, in this way. So verse 65 then the Lord rose up 
as though he was waking from a sleep, like a warrior aroused from a drunken stupor, and he routed his enemies and sent them to eternal shame. And then you skip down to verse 69. Um, there he built his sanctuary as high as the heavens, as solid and enduring as the earth. He chose his servant David. That's a familiar name. He chose his servant David, calling him from the sheep pens. He took David from tending the ewes and lambs and made him the shepherd of Jacob's descendants, God's own people, Israel. And he cared for them with a true heart and led them with skillful hands. The Lord provides his people with a shepherd, King David, to rule over them, to care for them with a true heart and to lead them with skillful hands. And this is how the psalm finishes. But if you've been at church over the past couple of months, we've been going, you'll know we've been going through the book of 1 Kings and we've, we're familiar with this guy, David. And we know that actually David has a pretty checkered track record as well as the shepherd king. I mean, as we'll find out as we keep on going through uh, 1 Kings is that he did a better job than any other king that came before him or came after him, but his reign was still riddled with the kinds of self-focused rebellion that we see from Israel in Psalm 78. And the generations after him, they only got worse. They did not set their hope anew on God. Most of them forgot his glorious miracles and failed to obey his commands. They were exactly like their unfaithful ancestors before them. And if we look in the world around us as well, our experience of the world, we we live in a world that's no different, don't we? Every single one of us has a heart that's like a trolley with a dodgy wheel. Have you ever tried to push a trolley with a dodgy wheel? It's hard work, isn't it? No matter how much you try and push it in a straight line, it's always veering off to the side of the aisle. This is what our hearts are like, continually veering away from God. This has been true of every generation before us. It's true of our generation. And it'll be true of every generation that comes after us until Jesus returns. And so we need... I mean, this this shepherd king is a great start, but we need something more. We need a solution to our our dodgy trolley, our heart problem. Now, thankfully, generations after this psalm was written, God once again showed his, his characteristic mercy and grace. And God provided Jesus the Saviour King. And Jesus faced God's wrath at our rebellion by dying on the cross to deal with our our sinful heart problem. And Jesus is the one who made forgiveness possible for every generation before him and every generation that that came after him. Jesus is our perfect shepherd king. He's even in the line of David. And Jesus shepherds our hearts towards God And he sets the perfect example of obedience to God for us to follow. Now, the message of Psalm 78 is pretty clear. Remember the glorious deeds of the Lord and teach the next generation about him so that they wouldn't turn, so they would turn to him in faith and avoid provoking his wrath. In principle, that sounds pretty logical, right? We go, oh yeah, okay, that sounds about right. But how ought we go about this in practice? Now, I don't know if you know this yet, but engaging in this kind of intergenerational kind of ministry that this psalm talks about 
It's actually one of our core values here at Jamboree Anglican Church. Um, you might know that we have six core values as a church. They are that we are orthodox in our doctrine, we are Anglican in our form, we are missional in our outlook, intergenerational in our fellowship, we are village in our relationships, and we are heritage in our style. Now, I haven't got those committed to memory yet. I checked them out on the website. If you want to read more about them, you can, you can do it there as well. But did you notice number four? It says one of, our, one of our core values is that we are intergenerational in our fellowship. And so how are we to go about doing this? How do we go about being intergenerational? Well, I have a ton of thoughts about this. It's something that I think about a lot. Uh, but for the sake of time, I've narrowed it down to three. Three things that we can practically try and put... Uh, into practice, ways of investing in the next generation of disciples. Firstly, we can invest in an, effect, an effective partnership between parents and the church. I mentioned earlier the National Church Life Survey. Do you remember that? Uh, this is the survey that we do. Uh, um, one of the things that this, the research from this survey shows is that at the very top of the list of people who have the biggest impact on the faith development of children... It's not their friends, it's not their, their youth and kids ministry leaders at church, it's their parents. Parents are at the very top of that list. Now that's not surprising because God has actually set it up that way. He's giving parents the primary responsibility to disciple their kids as followers of Jesus. We, we saw that in that passage from Deuteronomy that we, we read out earlier. He calls parents to teach their children. And when kids have parents who model faith, who read the Bible and pray with them, who speak about living as a Christian with them, and the research shows that these are the kids who are more likely to continue in their faith as adults. But the most effective retention happens when parents disciple their kids in partnership with the church. And that's because that's who we are as Christians. When we're saved, we're not saved as individuals, we're saved into a community, an eternal community, the church. Throughout the entire Bible, that's what we see. Uh, children are included in that, that community as equal members. Now, Jesus welcomes the little children, even though the disciples are, are shooing them away. We have a stained glass window of that up there, if you're, if you're wondering um, why that's there. It's to, to remind us that children are equal members. Um, elsewhere, children are specifically addressed in Paul's letters to the churches. In Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, he speaks directly to the children. Children, obey your parents. He doesn't say, hey parents, make sure you teach your children to obey you. He speaks directly to the children, expecting that they are listening to this letter being out, read out to the church. They are there as, as members of the church. And as we read through the New Testament in particular, the metaphors that are used for church are things like family and household. Kind of concepts that include young people in them. So this is why in our church we, we keep the, the kids in for a significant part of our service so that they can be involved in things like singing and saying creeds and the announcements about what's actually going on at church and most importantly hearing God's word read out. These are the things that the people of God do when they gather together and kids are equally members of that gathering. We don't exclude them from that. Rather we include them in these important things. Now, we do have age-specific teaching for them. We take something out to Joey's or, or to Ruse. 
um, so that all of us can interact with God's word in a developmentally appropriate way. But that happens within the context of an intergenerational structure where all ages and stages are nurtured together in faith and love. Now, a good way of thinking about this is thinking orange. So who can tell? I want one of the kids to shout out to me. What, does anyone know what happens when you take the colour red and you mix it with the colour yellow? Who can tell me? Brown, sometimes brown cups, I guess. <laughs> what colour do we get? Orange. That's right. Now, if we think about the ministry at home, by parents and in, in the family, as represented by the colour yellow, and we think about the ministry of the church as the colour red, what we need to effectively disciple our kids is to bring these two realms of life together in a partnership and think orange. Sounds pretty smart, doesn't it? I didn't come up with that myself. It's a concept that I found in a book with the aptly named title, Thinking Orange. I'm happy to lend it to you if you want to have a read. Basically, the idea is that children are most effectively discipled when families and churches are active in partnership to raise them as disciples. So as a church, we need to be thinking through how we partner with and support parents as they seek to raise their kids as followers of Jesus. And parents, we need to be thinking about how we help our kids engage with the church, with church services when we're, when we're together like this, but also with the people, because that's what a church is. It's the people gathered. And this is my first practical way of investing in the next generation of disciples, an effective partnership between parents and the church. Second is, don't just leave it to them, to the kids, to figure it out for themselves. You know, there's a lie that many Christians have bought. And that's that we should avoid imposing our Christian beliefs on our kids and rather just leave them to make their own decisions and figure out their own beliefs while we just stand to the side hoping for the best. But that doesn't... When it comes to other things, other important things that they need to learn, we wouldn't dream of having such a passive stance. I mean, think about road rules, for instance... Road rules are something we actively teach our kids about. We don't leave our, our young children to figure out their own relationship with the main road and we just hope for the best, standing to the side. We actively teach them. We hold their hand and guide them across. We teach them to look both ways to avoid um, the danger. We, we, we teach them to cross at the crossing. We, we're active in teaching them these things. And we don't just leave our 16-year-old boys or girls to just figure out for themselves how to drive a car and just go ahead and let them do it however they see best. You know, we, that's, a, that's a recipe for disaster. We, we teach them. We take them for drives. We, we, we show them how to drive responsibility. When they do the wrong thing, we correct them. We actively teach them things like road rules. So why, when it comes to God, would we think that it won't end in tragedy if we leave them to figure it out for themselves? Raising children as followers of Jesus requires us to be intentional and active, to put in the hard yards to teach them. And it is hard. It's hard work. Like I said, I've been investing in youth ministry for 20 years. I have three kids of my own now to raise as well. And it's hard, hard work. And I admit that I feel overwhelmed and under-equipped for the task just about every day. But if Psalm 78 shows us anything, it's that left to their own devices, our kids will choose to rebel against God. And there are significant consequences for those who do. So don't just leave them to it. 
be active in discipleship. Finally, third one, is to actively invest in intergenerational relationships. This is part of the reason why Thinking Orange actually works is because it provides young Christians with an opportunity to establish real and meaningful relationships with older Christians. And these relationships play a huge role in affirming their identity as members of the church. For me, uh, I I came to faith as a teenager uh, through youth group. That's where I first started to to learn about Jesus um, and became clear to me. And and I I have to tell you, I loved youth group. It was the thing I lived for each week. I loved it so much that I I didn't leave for another 20 years. But reading the Bible with peers my age, I can't, I can't tell you the huge impact that had on me. But as I look back, it was actually developing real intergenerational relationships with Christians outside of the youth group and serving alongside them in church, which had the most profound uh, impact on my identity in Christ. You know, as a 15-year-old, being able to play my guitar in a church band alongside brothers and sisters who were, in some cases, 50 years older than me. You know, and as a 17-year-old guy, being given a flock of tiny three- to five-year-olds to love and to teach Sunday school to. And as a 21-year-old about to get engaged, being invited into the lives of older married couples to see what it looks like in practice for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. These, these are the intergenerational relationships that affirmed me and my identity as a disciple of Christ. And one of the things that I really love about this church in Jamboree is that we are geared towards this kind of intergenerational relationship on a weekly basis. You know, dinners on Saturday night, followed by nightlife, I mean, that, that's not just there for the sake of it. On a Sunday morning, having fellowship after the church, having morning tea together, it's not, these are opportunities for us to invest in intergenerational relationships. They're amazing opportunities. I'm really thankful that we have them. But to finish, what I want to do is I want to lay out two challenges for all of us here for us to aim at weekly to be intentional about intergenerational ministry. Challenge one. I'm sorry, I didn't get these on the, on the board, so you'll just have to listen up. Challenge one. Every week, be intentional about speaking to one person from a younger generation than you. Every week, be intentional about speaking to one person from a younger generation. Now, this will inevitably mean that you also have to speak to someone older than you, because as you're thinking about speaking to someone younger, someone older than you will be thinking about speaking to you, unless you're the oldest person here, which I'm sorry, it's just a reality. <laughs> but each of us being intentional about in investing in the, the people younger than us, and I say it this way because that's how it works in the Bible. Now, Psalm 78 doesn't say, hey kids, go and make sure the oldies tell you about the glorious deeds of God. No, it puts the onus on the older to go to the younger. And so my challenge is for us to be intentional about speaking to one person each week from a younger generation. You know, when you're finding your seat for dinner, look for a younger person that you can sit with, chat with. It doesn't have to be an in-depth conversation. It doesn't have to last very long. Even just asking, hi, how was your week? That can be a really significant thing. Maybe you could ask to chew on this question. That's kind of why they, that's why Jody writes them every week. Or maybe you could ask them how they've seen God at work this week and have a story prepared to tell them about how you've seen God at work in your life this week. But actually, probably the best thing that you can do is ask, hey, how, how can I pray for you this week? 
Because what that does is it gives you a meaningful conversation to have there and then, but it also gives you an opportunity to follow up next week and have another conversation with them. Say, hey, I prayed for you this week. How did it go? Is there simple ways to connect with others and invest in relationship, intergenerational relationship? And it's, it's a challenge because, well, sometimes we find it hard to do. Um, it can feel a bit awkward. And, um, and like uh, my experience talking with old people, they feel like they don't have much to offer young people and that uh, it's just a bit awkward. But it's worth pushing through those first few awkward times of trying this for the benefit that it can have for our community long term. So that's my first challenge. Speak to someone younger than you. Challenge two is to engage in service at church intergenerationally. Engage in service at church intergenerationally. One of the great privileges of Christianity is serving one another. Most of us will serve in one way at church or another, uh, in various kind of ways, maybe on the roster, maybe in a, in a ministry group, maybe it's just you know picking up a Bible and putting it away. Maybe it's just a, uh, a thing that you do from time to time. And my challenge is that you serve, that as you serve, you think about how you might be able to empower a young person to serve alongside you. Um, if you're on prayers, what team can, can you teach to pray with you? It was great to see Siobhan and, and Dash praying together earlier. If you're on welcoming, which kid can help you greet other people at the door? If you're on Bible reading or serving dinner or whatever it is, think through how you might be able to give someone younger the opportunity to serve alongside you and learn from you. Because engaging in service intergenerationally is a really effective way of affirming young people and giving them a sense of belonging and purpose in the community. And it provides a fantastic opportunity to pass on the faith and share stories of the glorious deeds of the Lord to pass on to the next generation. So there you go. That's my two simple challenges. I hope you'll join me in taking them on starting tonight. Um, And so before you head out the doors, look around, eyeball a, a younger person, and, uh, and, and, uh, and figure out what you're gonna, how you're going to strike up a conversation with them and do it praying that God will use you to encourage that young person to continue in their faith and that they in turn would invest in the next generation to the glory of God and the growth of his kingdom. Amen. Uh, we're going to stand and sing our final song.